So we are studying the, the, uh, the life of Jesus. And last week I talked about barriers to coming to understand who Jesus is. Tonight we're going to look at the first public miracle that Jesus does. And I thought it seemed to make sense because the fall is a time for making first impressions. I dare say a lot of the people in this room in the last few weeks have been thinking a lot about first impressions. Now, when I first introduce myself to people, I always know that they're going to do a double take when they hear my last name. Twit. T-W-I-T. I remember when I was in college, people would try to, sometimes the first day professors would read the, the role and they would say Kevin and hope I would cut them off and I just love to let them squirm. And then they would mispronounce it to be polite. It's like, how else could you pronounce it? It's T-W-I-T, it's twit. But as strange as my name is, my dad was almost named Weir Twit. W-E-I-R. Now his mother, in all fairness, was named Javerna Berkestrand. <laughs> so, you know, it didn't seem so strange to her. Her brother was named Weir, so there was a Weir Berkestrand. Norwegian, good Norwegian names. And, um, but they grew up in a little, little farming community in Iowa, and one of those places where the doctor knew everybody in, uh, in the town, and my dad was born at home, and when it came time for the doctor to fill out the birth certificate, and my grandmother told, her, told him to write down Weir Twit, she looked at him and he said, Javerna, I am not doing that to that kid. I am not writing that down. Pick another name. And so he became Kenneth, <laughs> Kenneth Twit. It's a strange thing, making first impressions. When you come to this story of Jesus, it's a very strange episode that he picks for his first impression. And I will just say this. If you were inventing a story to impress people, this is not the kind of story that you would put right at the beginning of the story of Jesus. It basically is a story about a party where they run out of wine, and so Jesus makes some more because his mother comes and asks him to. The guy who's going to be in trouble if they run out of wine doesn't even know that Jesus did the miracle. While it's a public miracle in a sense, it actually isn't public in the sense that everybody there even knows what happened. And that's what Jesus chooses as the opportunity to make his public debut. It's interesting, isn't it? I wonder if he would have done better if he'd had a music business degree or at least a manager. Because <laughs> I, I don't think these are the kinds of ways that important people who want to change the world begin their careers. But I think as we dig into this story, you'll find that it actually makes quite a lot of sense why Jesus chooses this setting and this manner to begin to describe who he is and what he's about. Let's look at our passage. It's in John chapter 2, which is in the New Testament, the Gospel of John. We're going to start with the first verse. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, 
My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And the disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. It's an interesting story, isn't it? The master of the banquet is surprised that the good wine comes out last. But there's a lot more strangeness to this tale than just that. Let's pray together, and then we're going to go through this a little bit. Lord, we do thank you. Thank you first and foremost, Lord, that you revealed your glory, because you didn't have to do that. Lord, help us to never take for granted that you left heaven, took on flesh, and lived among us. Lord, help us to understand what that was all about. Why? What sort of man does this? Open our eyes. Send your spirit to open our eyes that we could behold the glory you have revealed through this first time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I was saying, it's a strange first impression. It's somewhat public. The servants know. His mom seems to have figured out that he's going to do something. But the master of the banquet doesn't know what's going on. The bridegroom doesn't know what's going on. Now, the master of the banquet is basically a guy who's like the caterer and the master of ceremonies all wrapped into one. He's the one whose job is on the line and who will risk major social embarrassment if they run out of wine. And it was a difficult thing to, to, to sort of take care of because these weddings would often last a week. It was the event of the town. Everybody's there, and you don't run out of food and wine. But it's not a very impressive sign. I mean, Jesus certainly did things that had more wow factor. He raised a guy from the dead, for crying out loud. He walked on water in front of a bunch of people. He fed 5,000 people with some loaves and some fish. Why didn't he pick one of those for his first sign? And I think, you know, if you're ever trying to explain to somebody, if you're a Christian in this room, and somebody asks you, tell me about Jesus, I dare say none of you would say, well, what you really need to understand is what he did first. And here's what he did first. He turned water into wine to keep the party going. See, religious people are a little uncomfortable with this. They try to say, well, it was probably grape juice. There's no way you can say that from this passage, right? So religious people don't like this story. And, and most other people, it's just not one of those stories that you think much about. 
We make a passing reference to it, preachers do, every time we do a wedding. But do we really understand what's going on here? It's not very impressive. It's not very public. The weddings were a big deal. Cana of Galilee is a town of no importance. You understand that Jesus spent almost his entire public career in an out-of-the-way, third-rate little town in a country that didn't matter very much either. He didn't go to the big cities. He didn't go make a big splash. He went to a wedding in a small town, made water into wine that most people didn't even know he'd done. And that's how he starts. Basically, Jesus is keeping the party going to save the master of the banquet, from major embarrassment. But the, the more you understand about the Bible and the big picture story that God is trying to tell, the more you realize that actually a wedding is a pretty good place for Jesus to start. You see, God created weddings to teach us about his love. I know whenever I do a wedding, that there are people there who are married and enjoy their marriage. There are also people there who want to be married and aren't. There are people there who are married and don't want to be. Weddings stir up something. The Bible says that's because we were made to be married, not necessarily to another person, there is a legitimate calling to singleness. But what I mean is God created a people, not just to be his little worker bees. A lot of people who grow up in church, if you press them, what do you think God really made you for? Maybe they've heard God made you to love you, but what they've gotten, the subtext over and over again, is God made you to work for him. But I'm here to say God really made you to love you and to marry himself to you. And here's what's fascinating. See, here we are in the New Testament. What happened in the Old Testament, the beginning of the story, so to speak, is that God had created a people to marry himself to them, but they had run after other lovers. When Jesus chooses a wedding to do his very first miracle, he's saying the wedding is still on even though by all rights it shouldn't be, right? Genesis chapter 3, the fall. Mankind said, I know you created us for yourself, but we want a different way. The Bible should have ended right there, but there's Genesis chapter 4. Well, it should have ended there, Cain and Abel. That was a mess, but no, the story goes on. Chapter 5, chapter 6, on and on and on. Every chapter you read in the Bible, part of you should say, okay, why is this story going on? When is God going to say enough is enough? I created you for myself. You've taken all these gifts that I've given you and you've used them to run after other lovers. If you want a really graphic description of that storyline, look at Ezekiel chapter 16. You can look at it later. But here Jesus is coming. And the first thing he says by this miracle is the wedding is still on. The wedding is still on. It's the first thing we need to see here. The wedding is actually a really great place for Jesus to make his public debut. Because religious people 
And people who are trying to figure out what Christianity is all about need to understand that God created us to marry himself to us. And in spite of our fighting against that, the wedding is still on. And Jesus is about that. Now his mother asks him what seems like a pretty typical thing. At this point, it seems that Joseph... His earthly father is out of the picture. We don't know what happened to Joseph. But he's not in the story, never shows up in the story. So it would seem pretty natural for Mary to turn to her oldest son. You know, a lot of you are more westernized. But people in Middle Eastern cultures really look to their sons. I have Middle Eastern neighbors. And I remember it was interesting going to a funeral. And one of my neighbors was trying to explain to me um, a bit of their customs, and he said this fascinating thing. He said, a son knows that his future is through his father. You have to listen to your father and listen to what he says because your future is through your father. There's a very important relationship, sons and fathers, in this kind of culture. So it seems natural that Mary would say, there's a problem. Jesus, they've run out of wine. Now, so I heard some people wince even when I read this. I read the New International Version translation because it's closer to the Greek than a lot of the other English translations. Most of the English translations have, have Jesus' response to his mother this way. They say, dear woman. He sort of sounds like the Buddha. Oh, dear woman. You know, I'm over here meditating. Uh, you know, I can't be bothered. But it's because I'm so spiritual and holy. And I'm thinking about holy things, Right? But that's not the way it comes out in the Greek. Now, it's not exactly rude, but it's at least abrupt. Woman, why do you bother me? This is not how sons, Middle Eastern sons, talk to their parents. I can't imagine my next-door neighbor speaking to their parents this way. can't imagine it. So what is going on here? It's startling. Is this how Jesus talks to his mother? But you see, Mary takes this slight rebuke and understands what's going on. Look at verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, that's interesting. She comes to him with a simple request. He responds strangely, abruptly to her. It's a mild rebuke, and she begins to sense what's going on here. Here's what's going on. From this point forward... She no longer comes to him as his mother with special privileges and sort of a beeline to God incarnate. She comes as a disciple like everyone else. Now, I know there are large portions of the Christian church that seem to think Mary is the way you get to Jesus as a beeline. This story shows that Mary herself doesn't understand it that way. She understands that we all must respond to Jesus as Lord. She enters this story, begins this story as his mother, but now as he's embarking on his public ministry, she, like everyone else, needs to come to him as a disciple, recognizing who he is. She gets it, and she tells the servants, oh, okay, do whatever he tells you. It's faith. It's not shame. It's faith. And here's what it helps us Here's how it helps us to see this. Jesus is showing right at the beginning of his ministry that he will not bow to any agenda other than his own. 
not even his own mother. And this is a struggle for Jesus. Later, his best friend will tell him, Jesus, you don't know to, get, to have to go to Jerusalem to die. You're the Christ, the Messiah. And do you remember what Jesus said to Peter on that occasion? He said, get behind me, Satan. Jesus will not allow anybody to take control of him and use him for their own agenda. Now, I actually think it would be awesome if Christians remembered that more. Because honestly, I think one of the great barriers to people taking Christianity seriously in our world is the way so many Christians seem to want to use Jesus as a means to an end. And the way so many people have said, you know, with God on our side, with Jesus on our side, we can get our agenda passed. We can have our way in this world. Jesus shows right at the beginning, I'm here to marry myself to my people. The wedding is still on, yet I am Lord. And you see how what we talked about last week, that Jesus comes full of grace and truth? You get it here. The wedding is still on, grace, but truth I will not bow to your agenda. But here's the amazing thing. He does it anyway. He says, woman, why do you bother me? My hour is not yet. But then he actually does what she asks. Isn't that? He's not unkind, but he wants to make sure she understands the nature of the relationship. Jesus answers abruptly, but we need to ask why. And this is where we get into the heart of what this passage is about. Why does he answer abruptly? I think the picture we have here is Jesus deep in thought, who's been kind of caught off guard, so to speak. I, I know this. My wife can tell you I'm like this all the time. I, I did a little Myers-Briggs personality test the other day just for fun. And it sort of came out my profile that sometimes I just am in another world, lost in thought. And sometimes if my wife asks me a question or my kids, the answer they get doesn't really have very much to do with what they asked me. It has more to do with what I'm thinking about. Right? Sometimes we get lost in thought and the first thing that comes out of our mouth has more to do with what we're thinking about than with what somebody has just asked us about. And I think that's what's going on here. Listen, you guys are still fairly young, but when you're 30 years old, like Jesus in this point, and you're still single, and you go to a wedding, what do you think about? You think about your wedding. Let me give you a tip, guys, girls. If you go on a date, like a first date, to a wedding with somebody after they've already graduated college, Get ready for the emotional roller coaster because people are thinking and imagining you, the date, in this setting with them. It's inevitable. Single people think about their wedding whenever they're at a wedding. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here. And you know why I think that? Because of what he does and what he says to his mother. What does this deal with my hour is not yet? Now, some translations say, dear woman, why do you bother me? My time is not yet. The NIV correctly translates this hour because the word hour is actually a very important word in the Gospel of John. It appears a number of times. Every time the word hour appears in the Gospel of John, do you know what it refers to? 
refers to his crucifixion. Jesus is sitting here at a wedding. All the celebrations going on, and he's sitting there brooding about his hour. Is that strange? He's sitting there at this wedding with all the joy, thinking about his crucifixion. Because he's thinking about his wedding. And Jesus understands that for him to celebrate the wedding feast that he's come to initiate with his friends is going to require him to go through his hour. He's sitting here at this wedding feast thinking about his hour because he's thinking about his wedding. And the only way his wedding comes is if he goes through his hour. The only way his day comes is if he goes through his hour. That's what's going on. It's weird, isn't it? He's sitting there thinking about death at a wedding. He's brooding. The way he does this miracle confirms that this isn't just some crazy idea that the preacher thought of. Look at how intentional the text is to tell us about what he does. Verse 6 says, Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. See, John wants to make sure, if you're not Jewish, you understand what these jars are about. These aren't just jars of water to drink that he turns into water into wine. These are jars that are specifically used for ceremonial cleansing. And Jesus very specifically says, go fill these up, and after you fill them with water, which normally would be so that people could be cleansed, then take some of that water, and you'll discover that I've turned it into wine, give it to the master of the banquet. So the servants know very well that he's taken this water that should have been used in the ceremonial cleansing ritual, and he's turned it into something else. The miracle confirms that he's thinking about cleansing. And he's thinking about the new cleansing that he's come to bring. He makes real wine. Good stuff. Like I said, this makes some people uncomfortable. And you know, if this makes you uncomfortable, it may be because you've been taught poorly by Christians who've made you think that Christianity is about having a sour face all the time. You know, um, there's a place in 1 Timothy chapter 4 where the Apostle Paul says it's a doctrine of demons to teach people to abstain from good things like sex and food that God created for us to enjoy. Do you know that? There's a lot of people in the name of Christ teaching a doctrine of demons. There really are. People that think that the more spiritual you are, the more miserable you'll be, and the less you'll enjoy things like sex and wine and good food. But Paul says that's a doctrine of demons. And he goes on and tells Timothy, if you point this out to the brothers, you'll be a good minister of Christ, well-trained in the truth. So you see, this, this miracle is actually one that's a little challenging to a lot of people because a lot of people think Jesus is all about prayer and evangelism and quiet times, and worship, but here he is making good wine when they don't even really need it. The people are already drunk. Do you get that? They're already drunk. He's like, now's the time you can give them the cheap stuff. They won't know any different. 
And Jesus says, no, now's the time I'm going to give them the great stuff that points them to something even better. See, Jesus isn't giving them alcohol to dull their senses. He's giving them the good stuff to whet their appetite for a feast that they can't even imagine yet. That's what he's doing here. There's a verse in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6, that speaks about this hope. God has been regularly wetting his people's appetite by saying, I came to marry myself to you. The wedding is still on, and one day we will sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6 says this, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. I dare say that most people that speak about Jesus and speak about Christianity do not speak of him as one who will bring the feast with the best of wine and the best of food. But that's the way the Bible speaks about it. How did we get to a point where people think that Christianity is boring? Because listen, that's not the way Jesus understands what he's bringing. And that's not the way the Bible understands what he's bringing. I think we're embarrassed by this picture, honestly. I think religious people are embarrassed that the kingdom of God would actually be so earthy and so physical and sensual. But that's what God made us for. God made us body and soul and said, this is a good thing. Jesus took on human flesh. Jesus is the one who creates the best wine to reveal his glory. Shows us what he came to do and who he is. A couple last points in conclusion here. See, Jesus is the one who all the stories about feasting are pointing to. And I just have to ask you, if you're a Christian, do your friends get that what you believe you're headed for is the greatest party imaginable? Do you believe that that's what you're headed for? Jesus took the occasion of his very first miracle to said, I'm about weddings and I'm about feasting and I'm about good wine. When you think about how you represent Jesus to other people, do they have any clue that that's at the heart of this good story we call gospel? It's worth pondering. Maybe you just didn't know that. Maybe you've never been taught it. But now that you see it, it's worth wrestling with. Do I think that Christianity and joy go together? Sometimes I think Jesus made a mistake when he decided to compare the kingdom of God to the greatest party you can imagine. Because most people I know do not think of their faith, if they're Christians, as a great party. So what was Jesus thinking? Because he uses that imagery a lot. Here's why I don't think we see it as a great party. It's because most religious people, most people who grew up in church, expect to be invited they kind of have the sense that it wouldn't be a party if I wasn't there. <laughs> and as long as you think that, as long as you think you deserve to be there, you'll never understand the joy of the party and the great feast. What makes the great feast so great 
is that the wedding is still on. And it didn't need to be. It shouldn't have been. And the only reason the wedding is still on is because Jesus was willing to go to his hour and suffer death on a cross. Tim Keller has this great thing. He says, what you see in this picture is Jesus in the midst of all this joy sipping the coming sorrow so that you could sit in the midst of sorrow sipping the coming joy. Do you see how this passage, this story, turns everything upside down? What you need to think about when you think of Jesus is he's the one who says the wedding is still on. He's going to see to it that the wedding feast happens because he's going to do everything necessary for me to be cleaned up and welcomed at the feast. We read about it in Revelation 19 at the start, right? The wedding requires the bride to be made clean. And Jesus is saying, I'm the true master of the banquet who's going to provide everything, including everything you need to be clean so that you'll be welcomed in as a spotless bride. I think it's a pretty good story for Jesus to start with because it gets to the heart of what he was about, wanting to marry himself to his people and be willing to do anything, even suffer death on a cross, so that that could happen. And think of this as we close. From the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus knew what was coming. Do you ever think about that? It, the cross didn't just happen. Jesus knew it was coming and he pushed towards it. And it got more difficult the closer he got. That's why the, the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament says that Jesus learned obedience through suffering. It got more and more difficult, but he never backed down. The wedding is still on. The death has been died and the invitations have been sent out. How will we respond? Let's pray together.